Amen. I think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says the new temple of Christ on it. We're already a little pushed for time, so you'll have to listen quickly today. We're going to read the scripture as we go through it. Uh, it's interest of time, so um, we'll do it that way today. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we now have a privilege that most of those countries, most of the Christians in those countries we prayed for don't have. They get to gather We get to gather in corporate worship and hear your word. And they can't do this the way we can. Father, let us not take it for granted. Let us not take it as uh, just doing a Sunday ritual. Father, help us to understand how important this is, that we get to hear the word of the living and true God without fear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite uh, categories of books to read, and of which I don't read nearly enough of, are, uh, appropriately enough today, missions books. And the stories of missionaries who put it all on the line for Christ. Not only a source of, uh, a great source of sermon illustrations, but, uh, Outside of the Bible, I think probably the most inspiring stories there are, plus they're usually short. Um, and I have a little book called Climbing on Course by a na- man named Bernie Mays. And Bernie May uh, spent years as a missionary pilot for JARS, the Jungle Aviation and Radio Service and also for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And in the course of his missionary career, he flew all over the world several times. And uh, during one of those flights, uh, he writes in his book, he was checking his outside air temperature gauge, which is actually nothing more than a thermometer. And uh, he realized that he was trapped at the wrong altitude and the wings and the propellers were starting to ice over. And if he stayed at that altitude, it could prove disastrous. So he uh, radioed the air traffic controller for a change in altitude which was quickly granted, and he was able to move to a lower altitude. And as he guided the aircraft down to that safer altitude, he remarked to his co-pilot, what we need is a thermostat, not a thermometer. See, thermometers just measure the environment. They tell you whether it's hot or cold, period, that's all. But thermostats change the environment. Our houses have thermostats. They measure the temperature and then they react. They either cool the house down or warm it up in order to keep the house at the right temperature. And I was thinking, there seems to be a lot of thermometer people in the kingdom of God these days. It's easy to get a reading on everything from charismatics to Catholics. Everyone has an opinion. But rare 
are the thermostat people. Those people who can cool down an explosive situation or who can light a fire under a cold Christian. Thermostat people are not simply content with measuring the situation, but rather they're in the business of bringing about change. And in our passage this morning, we see very clearly that Jesus was a thermostat person. He had come to the temple and he had come to bring about change. As I told you last week, and I'm sure you remember, uh, Jesus was very different. To those in authority, the ruling class, the religious leaders, the political elite, different meant dangerous. And last week we came to the first real sign that Jesus was different. And it seemed to be a minor event. Jesus performed his first miracle, changing water into wine at a wedding. And it could be a really nice gesture. It could be seen as a a nice gesture at a social event. And certainly we wouldn't consider it to be a dangerous move. Well, if you had any doubts that those in authority considered Jesus to be dangerous, today's passage ought to make it very clear that the authorities have good reason to be concerned. So let's see where that takes us. We're going to start verse 12, John 2, uh, verse 12 and 13, with the temple. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's fitting that Jesus should really begin his public ministry in Jerusalem, at the temple. After all, the temple was the most important element in the Jewish religion at the time. The entire religious life of Israel, the ceremonies and the sacrifices, were centered at the temple. You could easily say that the temple was the heartbeat of the people. And the Lord went straight for the heart. Now, he was in Capernaum. It's about 20 miles from Cana. So he's gone from Cana down to Capernaum, uh, which is on the Sea of Galilee. It's not much of a journey to get there. Uh, Probably a very delightful journey. It was spring in Palestine. And as they approached Capernaum, they saw low rising hills, the deep uh, blue of the Sea of Galilee, and beautiful Capernaum situated on the shore Uh, sprawling back into the hills, framed from behind by the snow-capped majesty of Mount Hermon. And it's a really peaceful time for our Lord. His brother, his mother, his newfound disciples are with him, and uh, everything is good, especially in light of the excitement and freshness of the miracle that just happened. And it's also almost Passover, and there's a Spirit of expectancy across the land. Uh, probably very much like we experienced during the Christmas season. There's a spirit of expectancy. And the Jewish tradition required an entire month of preparation. The roads were repaired, the bridges were rebuilt or shored up, the tombs were rewhitened. Everything was tried to make, uh, to look very nice and, and proper in the way it should be. And so the entire land bustled with the spirit of Passover. And Jerusalem, although it was not a big city by ordinary standards today, it would have just overflowed with as many as uh, two million people crowding into it at Passover. Probably ten times the amount that normally lived there. So it's very natural to read in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
So he leaves Capernaum, travels to Jerusalem. And you always go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's on top of a hill. And uh, so we can assume that as our Lord traveled south to Jerusalem, the roads would become more and more congested with all these pilgrims heading there for Passover. And when he entered the gates of the city and approached the cream and gold of the great temple, the congregation uh, would just sort of swell. The congestion would get worse. There'd be uh, very much as there is today, sellers of uh, trinkets and souvenirs on all sides. And some of that may have bothered him, but not, I imagine, as much as what he saw at their temple. Starting at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is very concerned they had turned the temple into a bazaar. The first question we have to answer is, who is they? Was Jesus' anger primarily directed at the sellers and the money changers? Or was it more focused on the religious leaders? I think the action in the story appears to be directed towards the sellers and the money changers. But the anger in the story appears to be referring to the religious leaders. See, only they could allow the temple to be used in this way. And what we read here, that when Jesus arrived at the temple courts, uh, what we read that he found going on can only be classified as a marketplace or a bazaar. In fact, the word translated uh, in verse 16, a house of trade, is literally emporion, from which we get our English word emporium, a place where goods are bought and sold. So Jesus thinks he's going into the temple, and he walks in to an emporium. You see, they made it convenient. That's the first blank there in your outline. They made it convenient. Verse 14 tells us he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, animals necessary for those who came to offer a sacrifice. Obviously, for those people who traveled a long distance, it was difficult and impractical for them to bring animals with them. Besides, the animals had to be without certain imperfections in order to be approved Uh, for sacrifice by the temple priests. So devout Jews would come to Jerusalem and purchase the animals so that they could offer their sacrifice. But rather than set up the booths outside of the temple, the animal traders had cut a deal with the religious leaders. They said something fact of, if you allow us to bring our animals inside the temple courts, and then if you only approve our animals as sufficient for sacrifice, Then we'll cut you in on a piece of the profit. And so the deal was made and prices were raised and poor devout Jews who traveled long distances were taken advantage of. And it was all blessed in the name of convenience. After all, the religious leaders reasoned, weren't they providing a needed service? 
Weren't they making it more convenient for worshipers to have the good animals right there? And yet God's temple, the place where God was supposed to be dwelling with his people, had been turned in to a trader's bazaar with the smell of a barnyard and the noise of a stockyard. But not only had they made it convenient, they made it profitable. See, the people not only had to purchase animals at outrageous prices for sacrifice, but they also had to pay the annual temple tax required of all Jewish citizens. And the temple authorities wouldn't accept uh, just any kind of money. But as you can imagine, they would accept only a certain kind of coin that had a high silver content in it. And therefore, when you went to the temple to pay your temple tax, which, by the way, was the equivalent of two days wage, you had to change your money into the accepted currency. And guess what? There were temple approved money changers there ready and waiting to assist you. How convenient. Except the cost of assisting you in getting the correct type of money was usually another day's wage. And guess who got a cut of of the action? That's right, the temple authorities. So the temple isn't suffering from a cash flow problem. They control the very profitable enterprise. And who suffered? Once again, it was that poor, devout Jew who had traveled a long distance to come and worship at the temple. But the issues of convenience and profit were not the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that there was no room to worship. There's no room to worship. You see, the third and biggest problem was that the temple court where all this took place was called the court of the Gentiles. And this is a place where people from all nations were allowed to come to pray, to worship the one true God and to learn about God from his people. And when Jesus enters the temple court, the court of the Gentiles, he's confronted with commercialism run amok. Instead of a quiet, peaceful courtyard where people from all over the world could come to pray and learn about God and worship him, there's this noisy, smelly emporium. And the temple authorities had mocked God by allowing a place meant for the worship of God to become a place for making a profit. One of the last Old Testament prophets is known to us as Malachi. And like the other prophets, he fiercely attacked the corruption of the religion of his day. And like the the other prophets, he foretells a time when God will actually arrive in the temple to set things straight. And he wrote a magnificent passage, which is unforgettably set to music, in Handel's Messiah. And most people have heard it because they hear Handel's Messiah at Christmas time, as I'm sure we will in a few weeks. Malachi 3, starting at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Good news, surely. The Lord whom you seek is promised. And if he's the one we seek, then it stands to reason that he'll be just what we hoped for and counted on. But Malachi has more to say. Verse 2, Malachi 3, 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like silver and gold, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Remember I said you have to use your imagination and put yourself in the midst of the scene? Well, you're in Jerusalem now. It's Passover week. There's only one church in town, and everybody goes there. It's a mob scene. It's tourist attraction number one. There's dance in the first courtyard, performance art in the second courtyard, and a full-blown rock and roll mass in the third courtyard. You can buy a tour guide in the lobby, a cookbook in the kitchen, and T-shirts in Fellowship Hall. Weight Watchers meets in the Sunday school room on Mondays. There's Believer Size in the gym on Tuesdays and AA in the AV room on Wednesdays. There's a prayer group in the basement, a flower show on the front lawn, and group therapy in the conference room. And you can give your offerings or get your money changed at five, count them, five ATMs conveniently located at every exit. Please watch your step. And that sounds funny. That's not only what it was like there. That's what it's becoming like here. But you imagine they thought. They saw all this stuff going on. What a temple. What a church. God must be pleased. Or not. Remember I said Jesus was a thermostat person. Well, here he reads the situation, reacts to it, and makes some changes. And he makes a small whip. The carpenter from Nazareth proceeds to cleanse the temple. Remember, this is a man who made his living as a carpenter in the days when there were no Black & Decker power tools. Jesus was as strong as the ox that he drove before him to the total astonishment of the sellers and the money changers. He flipped over the tables with ease filled with their neat little piles of politically correct currency. Imagine the scramble as the coins rolled everywhere. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. A concept that has been so overworked that many today preach and follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. That Jesus is an idol, drained of his deity, a weak, good-natured guy whose great aim is to get us off the hook. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is meek and mild. He describes himself in Matthew 11 as gentle and humble of heart when he invites those that have burdens to, to come to him. There's dozens of scriptures that testify to his gentleness, but we have to balance this uh, with other descriptions of the Lord. For instance, in Mark 3, you remember the story, the passage of describing the man with the withered hand, the paralyzed hand. And Jesus looked around at all those who were questioning whether or not he would heal this man and heal his hand on the Sabbath. And it says, and he looked around them at anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And here, standing before hundreds of people with their mouths hanging open, Jesus delivers a stinging rebuke. Verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus must have been grieved, broken hearted, 
to find that instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. And instead of brokenness and confession, adoration and thanksgiving, petition and intercession, there is noisy commercialism. The holy had been merged with the unholy and confusion was the result. And it demanded the strong actions of the Christ for the spiritual to overcome the secular. But be clear about this. Be clear. This passage is not about Jesus losing his temper. You often hear it interpreted that way. See how human Jesus is? He gets angry just like everybody else. But that's not it at all. On that day, Jesus was announcing in an unmistakable way that he was the Lord of the temple. And when he threw over the tables of the money changers, he was saying, I am the messenger of the covenant of whom the prophets spoke. That's what this passage is about. And needless to say, there's lots of lessons for us here. First, we need to learn to be wary when we find ourselves justifying our decisions in the name of convenience. We need to ensure that uh, we're doing what's right in God's eyes according to his word rather than what's merely uh, convenient for us and can be done on our own terms. Secondly, the attitude towards the church is wrong when we see the church, when we see Potomac Hills as a place to make contacts for business advantage. It's not what we're here for. We come to church to worship God. Remember, the important question at the end of the day is not, what did I get out of it? But how did I do? Did I really worship God today or was I just going through the motions? When the loss of the knowledge of God and of who God is settles in, then an irreverent spirit takes root in our lives and it restricts our ability to worship. A.W. Tozer was a great writer and he wrote this uh, wonderful book called The Knowledge of the Holy and it's a small book and I highly recommend it. And in the preface, he's trying to explain why he felt he needed to write this book. And he says, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Well, even though he wrote that about 50 years ago, I don't think the situation has changed a whole lot. I think we could talk about the self-confident, bustling worshiper at the beginning of the 21st century. We ought not to break Jesus' heart today or any Sunday by coming into his house disrespectfully and irreverently. We need to spend time in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We need to spend time in praise and in prayer and in hearing the word preached. 
We need to be learning about him. Every time we enter this place for church on Sunday, Jesus is issuing us an invitation to worship from the heart without distractions. Our hearts can become like that outer court of the temple of Jerusalem. Even while we sit in church, the bazaars of suburbia can be spinning through our heads. We can be sit there and we're thinking of the next business deal we're going to close, the athletic events that await us, shopping trips, or just everything that needs to get done at home. I think Solomon said it all when he said in Proverbs 5.14, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's possible to be at the brink of utter ruin even when we're part of a Bible-believing church. And we also learn from this story that the temple itself, the place where God meets with his people, the place where God accepts his people because of a sacrifice, is going to be superseded by another temple and another sacrifice by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we see, starting in verse 18, his temple. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember back in verse 13, we saw this was the occasion of the Passover. And on the eve of each Passover, the head of the house would carefully gather up all of the leaven in the house, the yeast, and remove it, thus cleansing the house. You want to know where we get our tradition of spring cleaning from? And and everybody did that. They would cleanse the house with the attempt to remove absolutely any trace of leaven from their house. And yet the religious leaders of the day had given no thought to cleansing God's house. So God's son brushes aside the establishment and on the eve of the Passover cleanses God's house, removing the leaven of unrighteousness, which had so long defiled it. And so we see he is the new dwelling place. He is the new dwelling place. This act of cleansing is far more than the reform of a decadent system of worship. Jesus is bringing an end to a way of life and thought. Israel's institutions of the law are being replaced by the Christ of grace. The normal business of sacrifice will become unnecessary now that he has come to be the sacrifice. Jesus is opening a new way of worship. Accepted animals and approved money are no longer needed as Christ himself is the replacement of the temple. See, it's no longer their temple. Now it's his temple. There's a subtle word change here that we don't easily get in English. Previously in verse 14, John used the word Aaron, which means temple as an inclusive word. The whole of the temple complex, including all of the courtyards. It's used much as the way we would use the word church today to refer to the building. But in verse 19, Jesus uses the word uh, naos, which means sanctuary. 
And it's used of the central place in any temple as the shrine, the place where deity dwells. It's used of the temple in Jerusalem to refer to the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God dwells. So it says he came came to the temple. He uses one word. When he says, destroy this temple, he's using another word. He says, I came to the church. But now he says, if you destroy the sanctuary, I'll raise it up again. When the coming of Christ, there's no earthly house wherein God lives exclusively. Jesus is the new house in which the glory of God dwells. And as his death is the one true sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world, past, present, and future. So the physical temple is no longer needed as a place for sacrifice. When Jesus died as the one and only sacrifice, the temple died as the center of the religious system. Jesus is the one who now shows us the way to enter into the presence of God. Christ, who brings forgiveness, has become the new temple in whom God dwells among his people. Now there's no longer any need for us to go to the one special temple to worship, but rather all of our lives can become an act of worship. And all of that comes about uh, for each one of us, not by doing the rituals, but by believing in the one to whom the rituals pointed which is exactly what happens here. We see the disciples believe the scripture. Verse 22, the disciples believe the scripture. It says the disciples later remembered and understood what he had said. And so they believed the scripture. Actually, this happens uh, twice in verses 17 and 22. And these verses teach us this, the disciples immediately understood one of the acts of Christ as a result of knowing the scripture. And later on, they understood another one of Christ's acts as a result of knowing the scripture. The words of the scripture make clear the words of Jesus and the words of Jesus open our understanding to the words of scripture. Someone once asked a well-known Bible teacher what his greatest spiritual need was. And he said he was well aware of the many needs and faults in his life, but he believed his greatest need was to know more of God's word so that he might know more of God. It's important for us to realize, just like the disciples, we don't come to the Bible just to know the Bible. We come to the Bible so that we might come to know the Lord. It's through the word of the Lord that we come to know the Lord of the word. And it's interesting to note that Jewish leaders didn't fight back against Jesus. They weren't concerned by whether or not Jesus did the right thing. (coughs) They were concerned by whose authority he acted. They're smart enough to recognize that what Jesus had done carried the overtones of action of the Messiah. They didn't question the action. They questioned his right to do it. They knew when the Messiah came, God would do miracles through him. And so they thought the Messiah could do more or less whatever he wanted to with the temple. And so they asked Jesus for a sign. In other words, they're saying, if you're going to act like the Messiah, then produce a sign for us that will show us that you are the Messiah. And there's two problems with their demand on Jesus. The first is they're spiritually blind. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, 
We're going to see Jesus taking some action that is significant, that is a sign of him being the Messiah, the Christ. And then the Pharisees and company will come up to him and say, in effect, give us a sign. Time and time again, they failed to realize he had just finished giving them a sign. And they were too blind to see it. And that's what happens here. What has Jesus just done? He turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. But they said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The second problem, if the first problem is they're spiritually blind, the second problem is they're spiritually deaf. Jesus answers their demand by foretelling the greatest sign that could possibly occur, that he was going to die and be raised again from the dead. And they listened to him, but they didn't hear what he said. They failed to understand his words. They're too preoccupied with their temple to understand that he's talking about his temple. They wanted to see in order to believe, and Jesus wanted them to believe in order for them to see. See, because of whom Jesus is, there's no need for us to demand signs and wonders or miracles. Because of what Jesus has done, there's no need for us to demand demand signs. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, the greatest miracle, the greatest sign that could possibly be done for you has already been done for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived a perfect, sinless life, gave that life as a sacrifice for sins, yours and mine. And then he was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, where he sits and reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And he's waiting for that day when he comes again, and all the world will recognize him for who he truly is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't waste your spiritual life looking for a sign because you fail to see the greatest sign that has already been done. There's a memorable passage in C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's from the Chronicles of Narnia. I know many of you read that, and there was a big renewed interest in it when the movie came out last year. Uh, But one of those books is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and uh, it touches on our passage. In the, in the scene, Lucy and Edmund, two of the characters, are engaged in their adventure and they come to this large grassy expanse. And the, there's a sensuous green of the grass and it spreads off into a blue horizon, except for a white spot in the middle of the green. And so they look at this spot intently and Lucy and Edmund have difficulty making out what it is. And so uh, being adventuresome types, uh, they travel across uh, the grass until finally the white spot comes into view, and it's a lamb, a lamb, pure and white, cooking a fish breakfast. And I'm sure C.S. Lewis based uh, part of this on the imagery in John 21, where Jesus was cooking a fish breakfast for his disciples. And the white lamb is a Christ figure. And the lamb gives Lucy and Edmund the most delicious breakfast they've ever had. And then ensues this wonderful conversation as they talk about how to get to the land of Aslan. Aslan, of course, being the great lion. How to get to the land of Aslan, how to get to heaven. And as the lamb begins to explain the way, a marvelous thing happens. Lewis records it. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed 
and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. What a great picture. And Lewis was illustrating a great truth of our faith. The lamb is the lion. In biblical terms, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Qualities we consider lamb-like, gentleness and meekness, are indeed in Christ, but so are the regalness and the ferocity of a lion. The book of Revelation speaks of the wrath of the lamb in Revelation 6. What marvelous images of God, the lamb and the lion. The hand that was stretched out on the cross and had that nail driven through it is the same hand that grasped the whip in the temple, the lamb and the lion. Jesus came to purify us, and as Malachi said, to refine us like silver and gold. And truth be told, we don't like this any more than they did at the temple that day. We we don't think we really need the refiner's fire. Oh, sure, we could use a little polishing here and maybe a little buffing there. Maybe some rough edges smoothed and some dents pulled, but nothing too serious. We don't want Jesus in here turning over our tables. But I need to go through the refiner's fire. And so do you. Please understand this. The same Jesus who turns over my prayer desk is also the one who's on his way to betrayal and condemnation and humiliation and abandonment and death on my behalf. My chair, my seat, my pew is going to be thrown over along with my pretensions and my props and my defenses and my masks and especially my idols. God isn't going to let any of us continue to keep him on the margins while we pursue our own idolatrous interests. But the good news of the gospel is this, the Messiah with the whip is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us be known for our hatred of sin and idolatry. We must not apply the whip to others. We're not Jesus. But let's apply it to our own lives. First of all, that we'll have reverence for God. That will affect our worship. And our own church will become a house of prayer for the nations as it was this morning. And the grace of God would go forth from this place. May God deliver us from our idolatry, a lower concept of Christ, than we see in our awesome, transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient lamb, lion. When Jesus at a wedding poured out more good wine than anyone had ever seen, those who had eyes to see and ears to hear recognized the future blessings of the heavenly kingdom were present in the miracle of Jesus. And so John wrote at the end of that passage, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And now Jesus at the temple cleanses it of unrighteousness, inaugurates the new temple of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John writes, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. These are stories of transformation. 
The first miracle, our Lord brought fullness where there was emptiness. He brought joy where there was disappointment. He brought cleansing for the inside where there had only been washing for the outside. And in the second sign, our Lord brought peace where there was chaos. He brought justice where there was injustice. And he brought cleansing for God's house where there had only been cleansing for our house. He is the Lamb of Revelation 21 who says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus didn't come to tidy up the old system. He came to change it. He came to change people dramatically. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He wants to transform us. And the Lord makes the way of salvation clear that by believing we might have life in his name. And that's what the disciples did. They saw the sign. They understood the meaning of what Jesus had done. They knew that Jesus' actions were never simply displays of power to impress people, but signs, significant events that point beyond themselves to deep spiritual realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. And because the disciples looked for the spiritual meaning, they believed the scripture, and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember when Jesus started this whole thing, what did he say? He said, come and you will see. And these men went with him. And they did see. They saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw Jesus turn commerce into worship. And they saw Jesus turn the temple place into the temple person. Once again, Jesus says, come and you will see. Perhaps we should pray.